This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. We wish our engaged listeners a happy Independence Day. This Independence Day weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we're delighted to welcome to this program a great American and a brilliant legal mind, John Yoo. John Yu is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, a law professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Law, and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He has worked in all three branches of government, notably as an official in the U.S. Department of Justice, where he worked on national security and terrorism issues after the September 11 attacks. He also served as general counsel of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee under its chairman, Orrin Hatch of Utah, and has been a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Lawrence Silberman. On this 4th of July weekend, we welcome John Yu. Good morning, John, and a happy Independence Day to you. Good morning, John. Good morning to both of you, and thank you so much for inviting me to join you on this most important day of the establishment of the United States of America. Indeed. I'm inclined to suggest that it's truly fortuitous to have you join us on America's Roundtable on the 4th of July weekend, and as we celebrate our Republic's Independence Day, and to take this opportunity to reflect on the extraordinary efforts of America's founding generation in fighting for freedom and providing generations to come to extraordinary extraordinary foundational documents, the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution as ramparts in preserving our liberties and a means to keep a check on federal powers. In your piece published last year in July titled, Socialism versus the American Constitutional Structure, the Advantages of Decentralization and Federalism, you bring to the forefront an important and timely discussion. In one of the passages you write, I quote, Americans identify less by economic class than by ethnic, cultural, geographic, religious, and social differences. As Seymour Martin Lipset summarized in 2000, these factors made Americans born conservatives who enjoyed economic prosperity and social mobility in a land without an aristocratic, centralized state. And you go on to explain by saying, what these explanations overlook, however, is another unique element of the American experiment, its constitutional structure. And John, a hundred years ago, there was an effort in America by a parochial group to push forward a socialist agenda. However, it fizzled out. Now with Bernie Sanders and others within the progressive camp of Democrats, such as AOC and others, resurrecting this notion, the polling data that you shared reveal a sizable group of left-leaning voters supporting socialism. 
John, could you explain the Founding Fathers' visionary thinking and the original Constitution's understanding of federalism and the adoption of a decentralized approach to government power in the United States, and will it prevail as we face strong headwinds in the early stage of the 21st century? First, let me apologize for that terribly boring-sounding title I gave that article. The idea is actually <laughs> much clearer and more simple. But you know, and I'm, I'm an academic, so I have to use seven, eight syllables and, and multisyllabic words to say anything that's very simple. So I apologize for that. The basic idea is, is quite clear. The founders wanted to make it difficult for anyone to take over the country. And they want to make it difficult for any ideology to take over the country. And so as you just pointed out, the founders create a very decentralized government. You know, we have the government divided between the federal government and the state governments with most of the power over our lives left in the hands of the state governments. And then they divided the federal government into three branches. And so the whole idea of that was to make it very hard for anyone to take over the government and pose one set of ideas, to impose one ideology on the whole country. And in that respect, I think that's great to have this discussion on July 4th. They really respected the wisdom and judgment of the American people. And so they wanted to leave most decisions about life up to us rather than to uh, vest power in our lives over into a faraway government or a body of experts or an all-knowing leader or even a single political party. John, and that's why it is even more troubling because if we are in power to make decisions, then the polls that you actually incorporated in your excellent piece, and I would like to quote, a 2019 Gallup poll found that 43% of adults believed socialism to be a good thing, and 47% even reported that they could vote for a socialist candidate for president. Then you said uh, millennials view both capitalism and socialism with equal favor at about 50%. That contrasts with baby boomers who support capitalism over socialism by 68, 32%, and Generation X supports capitalism 61% to 39% that don't support. And then you said the same Gallup poll reported that 6% supported socialism because they believe the concept meant being social as in being friendly or talkative. And then even larger proportion, some 83% of the millennials told pollsters that they held a positive view of free enterprise, though 46% disliked big business. So do we have a problem of definitions and education about socialism, capitalism, free enterprise, or do we have a change of attitudes towards capitalism and for socialism? Well, great question. I hope it's the former, that young people just don't know what really what socialism is, rather than the latter, which is a severe change in what Americans actually want. And you know, we're living through that right now. You could see that's part of the battles we're having in Washington, D.C., where you are. Luckily, I'm in California, 3,000 miles away. And so maybe the I'm a little safer, but you both are in Washington and you're seeing that playing out right now where you have an administration and a slight majority in Congress who want to impose something that looks a lot like socialism to me. Trillions of dollars in spending and huge tax increases and uh, paying for everything from childcare, pre-K, all the way through to college and beyond, you know, free college education. 
That's what happened to socialist governments in Europe, right? They kind of create this, they call the cradle to grave. The government's going to take care of you from the cradle to the grave. But as you can see, structural things, structural parts of the constitution stand in the way of 50.1% of the people who won the last election getting their way and imposing this kind of sweeping, I think, socialist ideology uh, on the country, um, right? There's the bare majority in the House. There's the tie in the Senate. There's going to be litigation because of some of these areas, the federal government is trying to go too far and the states will defend their prerogatives. But on the other hand, the answer to your question, Natasha, becomes actually there has been a sea change in Americans' minds. And uh, this generation that's coming up out of high school, out of college, has such a favorable view of socialism, and that view prevails, then we could be in a lot of trouble right? because uh, they will continue to vote for candidates who want to impose these sweeping policies. I hope that fails and that this is just an idle temptation of youth and not actually reflection and considered thought. You know, a lot of these people may not be working. They may not, they may still be collecting unemployment insurance, or they may never have left their parents' houses, or they're still in school. Uh, you know, I always thought uh, Margaret Thatcher had this wonderful line about socialism, which was, you know, it's, it sounds like a good idea until you run out of other people's money. <laughs> and I think once these, this generation, you know, they like the idea, oh, the government's going to pay for everything from nursery school to college to giving me a job. To, but once they see their first paycheck and they see how much all of that costs in taxes, maybe they're going to say, hey, maybe decentralized government and free enterprise are the way to go. <laughs> And let me quote another part of your excellent piece. And you said, because the framers hardwired decentralization into the constitutional system, the federal government has had to resort to financial enticement to expand its influence into this area of state control. Perhaps one of the greatest threats to federalism has been the spending clause, which gives Congress the power to provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. And you said Congress can offer states large sums of money, but with strings attached. The federal government offers states matching health care funds, but only if states follow the Medicare and Medicaid guidelines. It makes education grants to schools, but only if they obey federal mandates. It supports state welfare programs, but only those that comply with federal regulation. So, John, our money, which is collected through income tax, allows the federal government to withhold it and not pass it to us for the public benefit if we do not agree with the federal government policy, even if it is a bad policy. So how do we mediate that in light of federalism and state rights? That's another, another good question, because uh, if you were to just take a fresh read of the Constitution, as you say, you would think most affairs of life are governed by states, criminal law, families, property, you know, accidents, contracts are still supposed to be governed by the states. And that's good because that's the government that's closest to us. We can see it. We can hold it more accountable. And also it stops the spread of bad ideas. You know, if Bernie Sanders wants to turn Vermont into a socialist paradise along with Ben and Jerry's, that's his prerogative. Indeed. But I don't have to live there. <laughs> like the, any kind of crazy socialist idea that gets pops up, you know, gets limited to that state unless everyone else wants to adopt it on their own. And it gives you and me the right to choose where to live. We don't have, you know, we can move to Texas instead of living in California, which is what a lot of people seem to be doing these days. 
because of you know somewhat ruinous policies. I think policies here in California, relatively more free market policies in Texas. So what the federal government has been trying to do, and it's really something that FDR came up with, but it's really accelerated under during the presidencies of President Obama and now maybe Joe Biden, is taking money through the income tax, as you as you just pointed out, Natasha, and then sending it back to the states, but saying, we'll only give you this money if you change your laws to follow what we at the federal government level want. So they're trying to evade the limits of the constitution on the central government. So Obamacare is a good example, right? There were states that didn't want to have essentially nationalized healthcare system. And so what the Obamacare deal was, they went around the country and they said to each state, we will give you hundreds of billions of dollars if you will change your system to fit into the Obamacare national healthcare system. That leads to the last question, Natasha, what do you do? So you have to use the tools of the government to resist that. So one level, the Supreme Court, there was four years of litigation uh, against Obamacare. It was ultimately upheld in 2012, but three of the important parts of Obamacare were struck down by the court. That was somewhat a victory. And then Congress, right? the Republicans took back the House uh, took back the Senate much out of anger about Obamacare, and they zeroed out a lot of Obamacare's programs. Still, Obamacare is alive because you might remember under President Trump, the Republicans fell short of one vote in the Senate of repealing the whole thing. Uh, but that's how you have to do it. You have to fight at every level of government. And that's what the founders wanted, right? They, they hardwired the system of decentralization and flexibility so that people could also put up a defense to overexpansion by the federal government. And that over that federal power, nationalist power is really what socialism needs to succeed. You know, you look at our other countries, and this is the sort of the academic or intellectual curiosity debate that's gone is going is most of the other peer countries, industrialized Western countries, almost all of them have had socialist governments at one time or another. The United States is the only one that hasn't. This drives left-wing Marxist academics crazy, like crazy crazy, makes their hair stand up on, it's probably already standing up on end, but now it's standing up on an even higher. And they always wonder, why is there no socialism in America? There's actually, that's the title of a famous essay. Why is there no socialism in America when Britain, Germany, Italy, Spain, they've all had socialist governments. And so they blame the constitution. They say it's too hard in America to gain control of all the different governments at all the different levels and all the three branches and impose socialism that way. Well, if they want socialism so badly, they should just move to those socialist countries. That would be much easier <laughs> yeah. than imposing it on all of us, right? Yeah. Well, that's the other odd thing I, I, you know, when I was writing that essay and thinking about this is just as you know, we see socialism declining quickly in the countries that actually had it for a long time, it's become, right, it's come back into vogue here in the United States, you know, the country that showed socialism doesn't doesn't work and defeated the Soviet Union and, you know, won back the, you know, the liberty and democracy and free markets for Eastern Europe. And right at the, you know, at the pinnacle of our success, we, we doubt ourselves so much that we, we turned to socialism, uh, which has failed everywhere it's been tried. This other part of it that uh, really surprises me is you, this is not just, you know, well, they tried to have these socialist friends of ours in Europe, they tried to have free college. It didn't work out. And this is an ideology that produced tens of millions of deaths in the Soviet Union and China. It Not only does it not work, it makes everybody far worse off. 
Indeed, in fact, Natasha has uh, written an excellent piece called Why We Aren't Free Yet. And uh, in fact, it focuses on the 300 million Eastern Europeans in which she communicates and articulates the concerns about the Eastern Europeans today, where they even notice the twin legacies of communism, which is the, the absence of the rule of law, basically, or very weak rule of law governance, and also rampant corruption. So, you know, those are the things that we've seen in Eastern Europe affect 300 million people across uh, the European continent, but it's something that has not worked, and we see its legacies that have really devastated an entire continent. Yeah, yeah, that, which makes the flirtation with it all the more puzzling by our younger people in college, high school, or ju- you know, just entering the workforce. Is if you just looked at the facts in front of you, you would say this was a failed ideology. And and once you dig your hole and you get into it, look at Eastern Europe still taking a lot of effort to get out of it. Exactly. Mm, Yes, that's correct. Uh, Let me segue into big tech and mainstream media, uh, which have meddled in the U.S. elections by biased and deceitful reporting. And one would assume that they would be the most obvious example of entities who would favor centralized government. And as you mentioned in your excellent piece, you said it is difficult to infringe on individual liberty with the state's retaining jurisdiction, which is why groups often lobby Washington, D.C. to impose a single national rule instead. So big tech is encroaching on the freedom of speech and it is not willing to give away its monopoly position and is using unmatched resources to lobby Congress, think tanks and other entities in Washington, D.C. to maintain the status quo. So our republic, our federalism, depends on the consent of the governed and free, fair and honest elections, which are also free of interference by big tech and the mainstream media. John, what are your thoughts about addressing the big tech and lobbying in general? Yeah, that's the tough question before all of us right now, because there's two conflicting impulses. The part of me that believes in free markets and does not want the government to intercede into the economy unnecessarily thinks of these big tech companies as private property. And, you know, we can't uh, the government, I don't want the government to force me to let anybody on my front yard have a protest or, you know, put up signs that I don't want there. Uh, I don't think the government should be able to tell store owners that people can come and give speeches in, in the middle of shopping centers unless they give their permission. On the other hand, big tech is something different. And we are trying, struggling to figure out how to fit it in. They're not just like newspapers. We didn't want the government telling news, private newspaper owners what to publish or not. But social media is far more powerful than the news, any individual newspaper was back in the day when newspapers were the dominant form of communication. And they actually flourish because of the protection of the federal government. Natasha makes an excellent point. Big business loves it when power is centralized because then there's just one place, one-stop shopping for lobbying, right? They don't want to lobby the 50 states. They prefer to go to Washington. It's easier and cheaper. And especially if you're the dominant companies, you want right, to create a moat around yourself to prevent competition uh, from attacking your franchise. So they have a protection in this thing called Section 230, you might have heard as top, you know, kicked around a lot, which essentially gives big tech immunity from lawsuits that would normally apply. And I can see why they did that, why Congress did that at the very beginning of the internet industry. And and I would point to their success as a sign of free markets work because there are no big tech companies in Europe. (laughs) There are very few in Asia. 
And that's because we had a fairly wild west attitude of no regulation at the beginning of the internet world. But now I worry these big tech companies, I agree with you, are abusing their power over speech. And so one thing, Justice Thomas, my former uh, boss, he has this idea that he put it out in an opinion about Twitter this year, which was maybe what we should do is think of big tech as what we call in the law, quote unquote, common carriers, like the telephone company, like the railroad companies, like utilities, like the water and power company. Even though those were private companies, we would not have said, oh, uh, railroad is free to say only Democrats get to ride my railroad, not Republicans, or bridges, you can go on and on. And the idea was, if you're a uh, company and you are what's this common carrier, you're basically running a network and you open yourself up to public use, then along with that privileged position of having the the land given to you to run the railroad system, you can't discriminate uh, against different parts of the public and who gets to use your network. And so that might be, you know, that that might be the solution. In fact, if I were to bet money, I bet that will be the solution in the end, that the legal system, Congress, the courts uh, will eventually come to see these companies as common carriers like the railroads. And because of that, they won't be able to discriminate anymore. Now, of course, as as Tasha pointed out, you know, Google, uh, Facebook, they are going to fight this tooth and nail. Right. They are going to spend enormous amounts of money to prevent that from happening because they don't want to be regulated. They like the world as is now is perfect. They are very lightly regulated and they're immune from lawsuits. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. John, you shared during a Fox News broadcast late last year that China is a far more serious adversary to America than Russia. And for our listeners in the Midwest through Lancer Broadcasting and in the South through Supertalk, what should Americans be concerned about when viewing communist China and its ambitions? And what would you suggest as the top three areas of concern? Uh, it's a a tough one. I don't know if there are just three. You're quite right. I think China is the great long-term threat to American national security, and it will be for many decades to come. Just like we were talking about the, the rise of the Soviet Union and the fall of Eastern Europe to communist dictatorship. I feel like it's 1949, 1950 for our generation, and we have to figure out the long-term strategy to right, contain, ultimately defeat this very powerful, wealthy, smart country that does not believe in democracy, free markets, or any of the ideals that we hold dear in the United States. That in itself would not be a problem if they all wanted to just live on a little island and have nothing to do with anybody else. <laughs> like, like, you know, if they wanted to ruin themselves. But the problem is, is that this communist ideology, right? The total, absolute central power controlled by the government, no individual liberty. It's combined, unfortunately, for the last few years with this expansionist nationalist ideology, right? The China... Uh, is not going to bide its time. China's not going to stay within its natural borders. They are trying to expand their influence all around the world and take over territory. I would just point out that, you know, this is a country with which the United States and Korea, the country my family is originally from, fought a direct war with the United States and lost a million in casualties. This is not by nature a peaceful country, right? They've gone to war with Russia. Uh, they've gone to war with Vietnam. They've gone to war with most of their neighbors, as well as the United States. I hope, I think, and that's one of the, I think that maybe the most important thing Donald Trump did as president was to turn America's understanding of China, I think, towards reality from this kind of dream world we were in where because China was going to trade a lot with the United States, they were suddenly over time going to be a large country of middle-class shopkeepers who love democracy and free markets. This just didn't turn out that way. 
So then the top three things, what do we do about it? Right. That's that. I mean, that's, you asked the hardest question. Number one, uh, slowly over time, we're going to have, I think, uh, start decoupling important parts of our economy from theirs. You know, we all benefit from how cheap Chinese goods are. Right? Like China has lowered the prices for uh, Americans in, in great ways. I mean, uh, you know, you go to Walmart or Amazon, all the reason things are so cheap is because of the, the drop in labor costs in China. But we are going to have to start decoupling because what they're doing now is they're trying to steal technology. They are stealing our technology, our intellectual property. They're creating competitors to a lot of our great technology companies by not letting them operate freely in their own countries. That's the first challenge to start decoupling our economy. We're still going to always have economic trade with them. They're different than the Soviet Union in that respect. Soviet Union was not as difficult a challenger because Soviet Union did kind of wall itself off. China is really integrated into the, you know, into the international economic system. We got to start decoupling. Then the second thing is we got to start rebuilding the military. That's what worries me a bit about the Biden administration is they, you know, their last budget shows no real growth for defense spending. China has the largest Navy in the world already. You know, they don't have to try to patrol the seas of the world. They just have to patrol the South China Sea, right? right? It's kind of like us concentrating our whole Navy in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> so they are building up enormous military resources. We have to, unfortunately, we have to bear the burden for the world and keep the peace. And that involves having a much larger military than we do now. And then the third, the third thing, and this is important, I, I the first two sound pessimistic, but I actually have great faith in, in the United States and our ingenuity, our entrepreneurship, innovation drive. I, I have faith in Americans on July 4th and our freedoms. You know, Natasha may know this. You, you go back and read what Americans thought during the Cold War. We had similar lack of confidence we were going to win. There were a lot of academics, intellectuals, journalists who thought the communism was the wave of the future, right? Was the fancy new secret <laughs> to governance and the economy. People really thought we were, and we look back on that today and we say, that was crazy. It's so obvious the United States and the allies were going to win. It was not obvious, <laughs> you know, until maybe the very end of the Reagan administration that that was going to happen. I feel a kind of defeatist tone in some of the discussions of China now, but I, I really have enormous confidence in the United States and our abilities. I really think that we will prevail as long as we, you know, we don't, we, the last thing we should do is copy our rivals and become more socialist. <laughs> the thing we should do is return more to, uh, you know, our fundamental American values of freedom and liberty decentralized government and innovation and creativity. I think that will carry us through as it, as it has for 230 years. John, you've done an excellent job in, in communicating and articulating the importance of our constitutional principles on this 4th of July weekend and just reminding us all about the uniqueness of America, America's exceptionalism, and why this country is so unique in that there are millions of immigrants from every corner of the world that have come to America, have made fine contributions, uh, and have made this place a very special place for each and every one of us so we have great things to celebrate this july the fourth weekend and we truly thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining us on america's round table thank you john I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said and i i thank you very much for giving me a chance to uh, share some patriotic thoughts at the end i hope on july 4th i i, I, I myself am an immigrant to the united states and uh I, I often say to my Berkeley students who sometimes are 
also doubting our country. And that what other country do you have millions of people waiting in line to join, to leave everything? You know, think about what you you did or our parents. You know, leave everything they left behind just based on the promise of the ideas of liberty and freedom that they, they would someday have in the United States. I find it incredible. John Yu is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, a law professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Law, and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. For his tremendous work and his efforts uh, in articulating these important truths, he's written 10 books. Uh, please visit your internet sites, uh, the ones that you appreciate, and just check John Yu and, uh, at the uh, Hoover Institution, and he's got a great list of articles, essays, and also check out the great books that he's written. Thank you so much, John, for joining us on America's Roundtable. We wish you and yours a happy Independence Day. Thank you, John. Happy Independence Day. To you as well. Happy Independence Day. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Jolan and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.